Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 27 as we continue our journey through this book. We now approach <clears throat> really sad and difficult chapter. Our songs have matched that. That's why we've been singing in parts of the hymnal that maybe aren't maybe your favorite go-to hymns for some of these. Matthew chapter 27 starting in verse 1. And again, I would remind you, because of the divine author, this was written for you today. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, 
Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released them, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him. Saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Father, would you please have your spirit work in us that he would be strong where we are weak, even in our faith. For Christ's sake, amen. not entirely sure how to do an introduction after a reading like that. How to have any sort of kind of casual conversation. In preaching class, they teach that the purpose of the introduction is to kind of get you interested in the passage and get you emotionally ready to engage it, but friends, if you're not there now, whew, you might want to look at your heart a little bit. We begin what is probably one of the worst chapters in the Bible, emotionally at the same time the best. Where the second person of the Trinity, who is God and always has been, the one who has stepped inside humanity and put on all that it means to be human. Remember, he has a human body, but he has the unseen parts of being human. He has a soul, he has a mind, he has emotions. And this man who is both God and man begins what is the worst journey ever. Through the wrath of God undeservingly, through the grave even to victory. As I said, it's 
emotionally brutal. I mean, if, if you think about it. So think of the God of the universe being spit upon, struck in the head, being mocked and ridiculed. It sometimes makes us a little queasy if you think about it too much, I think, some of us. And I love how this chapter presents kind of really the the emotional spectrum of how to think and how to feel about such a passage, about such a Savior, about such a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In fact, we're going to see that even in the midst of Christ accomplishing His salvation, He's showcasing for us, kind of really even our own hearts, what the hearts of humanity look like, even as he suffers. This is the point in the true, real story of Jesus where redemption is increasingly becoming like it's, it's happening now. If you've ever been whitewater rafting, this is the part of the story where you're kind of at the top of the rapids and you're like, I, I would like to go back now, but I can't. It's the part in the roller coaster where the bars have come down, the safety is engaged, and the ride is just taken off. And you're like, I don't think I want to do this. Well, sorry, friends. It's too late now. Redemption is approaching. Jesus' death is approaching. He's been telling them that it's going to happen. He's been warning them that he's going to die, even death on a cross, an atrocity too great to even be contemplated fully. And yet, people are not ready. This chapter, at least the part we've read here, is just one failure after another of people responding to the crucified Christ, the suffering servant, the anointed of God. And while it's easy for us, again, as we talked about last week, to say, well, look at those bad people. Look at at how they failed. Maybe we have something to learn along the way, even in our own hearts. First response we see in the text, verses 1 and 2, it's been kind of the driving response that's gotten us to this point in the story from the the bad guys, so to speak. When morning came, this is after the sham of a trial the night before, after Jesus has been betrayed by one of his most trusted students. What happens, all the chief priests, the elders of the people, array against Christ to put him to death. We're so accustomed to reading this that we sometimes forget who these people are, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews. These are literally the people who have been entrusted with the task of caring for God's people until the Messiah shows up. That's like their biggest job description point. If you were to to pull out a job description of the priests, at the very top would be take care of God's people until the Messiah shows up. And he has. And what are they doing? Are Are they taking care of God's people? Are they preparing the way for the Lord? Are they ministering to his saints? Are they shepherding his sheep? Are they preparing all of God's 
people to bow the knee before the Messiah. No. We find out from later here, Matthew tells us that in verse 18, they're filled with such envy. They're envious of the influence of Christ Jesus. And because of that envy, they hate him. And they're seeking his death. Response number one to the ministry of Christ, the redemption of Christ, we're seeing here written large, is a heart of hatred. Men that literally hate Jesus so much, they're working to put him to death. And it's easy for us to look at that and again kind of condemn them and say, how dare they? What wretched people? What terrible excuses for humans? You're literally murdering the Messiah, the anointed of God. And honestly, I think it's easy for us to do that sometimes. I I think many of us tend to think of good and evil uh, kind of like we were taught from the old cartoons. The good guys wear one color hat, the bad guys wear another color hat. Everybody's easy to see, actions are easy to discern. It's like we view bad guys as cartoon villains or Bond villains where they're so over the top and so excessive that it's easy for us to say, well, look at that bad person. I could never be that. And in fact, actually, I suspect that's how many of us treat even our neighbors. I mean, I could never be obnoxious, but man, have you seen them? I think that's often how we think of hatred. We think of hatred as as kind of having these sharp edges, like everything's kind of put in this very clear box where it's like, oh, look, I hate the things in here, and I don't hate anything else. The reality, though, is I suspect that for many of us, Hatred has much softer edges rather than it being an issue of sharp lines and clear distinctions, a colored hat or a colored cape. I suspect for most of us, hatred looks much more like a quiet resentment. I know you, right? Many of you Southerners, I'm a Southerner. This is how we do this. It's amazing how often we'll hear people say, I don't hate anyone, and then proceed to spew the most hate-filled speech you can imagine of quiet, seething resentment. Delighting in someone else's downfall or destruction. Not for Christian reasons, not you know, delighting in the downfall of an evil tyrant that's been persecuting God's church, fair enough, that's glory, hallelujah. But even delighting in the downfall of fellow saints. Relishing their hardship or difficulty. You see, the real, reality of the matter is, is we like to say, well, I could never hate someone the way that these, hate, these people hate Jesus. I can never be filled with such hate that I want to actually see them put to death, but (laughs) your heart betrays you. Think about how you daydream about the people that you dislike. 
You never daydream about them succeeding in their job, do you? You never daydream about them being blessed as neighbors or parents or friends. We delight in their failing. And friends, that's called hate. That is what that's called. That's called hate. A heart of hatred. No, already we get to kind of, this is really an uncomfortable sermon, isn't it? I've gotten five minutes into it, and already the bad guys are doing something that I do privately in my heart. We have a number of groups still to go. I don't like that. Some of you are going, well, I don't hate like that, maybe. <laughs> I might just, what, what, one more shot, and then we'll go on, right? How many of us resent the Lord privately when we have difficulty? Rather than trusting that whatever said difficulty is, it's a good gift of a loving Father designed to refine us and reshape us, we quietly nurture resentment even toward the God who made us and cares for us. The amazing thing here in this passage is that these are being kind of... uh, presented as a a juxtaposition with Christ in the middle of redeeming his people. Christ in the middle of suffering. A heart of hatred, if only that were it, that would be easy enough. We could say, wow, there's my thing to repent for, for today, and praise God, let's move on, but the story doesn't stop. The true story here turns to Judas. And his wretched end, Judas wakes up in the morning. Remember, he's betrayed him the night before, betrayed him with a a kiss. He had to get close to him. It was a sign of affection, a a sign of intimacy. And here he's used affection and intimacy to turn Jesus over to the bad guys. And you find out here that maybe in the back of his mind, perhaps he thought, you know what, this whole thing's just going to, it's going to turn out like nothing's going to come of it. Yes, I'm betraying Jesus for money, but it's money that I can use to help the poor. It's money that I can use to help poor Judas, and I can make my life a little better. It'll be inconvenient for Jesus, but surely they won't convict him of anything. But as he wakes up in the morning or gets busy in the day, he finds out that, oh no, they've provided false witnesses. The Lord of life has indeed been condemned in some fashion and now is being handed over to the notoriously generous Romans. Not notoriously generous. What happens with uh, Judas is what I would kind of categorize myself as. He's filled with an earthly, self-loathing regret. He wakes up and realizes, man, I did a bad thing. I did the kind of thing that everybody everywhere says is bad. I betrayed somebody in the most intimate way possible. I am a bad person. Verse 4, you even actually have his statement of, I'm not going to call it repentance because it's not, but his statement of grief, regret. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
We find out he brings back his money to try to return it, to say, look, even though I've done this bad thing, my regret is so overwhelming, I have to do something to make myself feel better. And that's going to be the key, to make myself feel better. He tries to give the money back to the chief priests and the elders, and they dismiss him in the most emotionally savage and brutal fashion. Oh, your regret? Yeah, we don't care. Yeah, we don't care. Oh, yeah, you betrayed? Well, it stinks to be you. We don't care. He then takes the pieces of silver, throws them. The word here actually is in. I think probably intentionally vague. We can't tell if he just throws them into the temple or if he actually literally throws them into the Holy of Holies. It's not clear. That's possible. Either way, he's obviously trying to get the dirty money out of his hands. He pitches it into the temple and he goes sprinting out. Anything to make himself feel better. And think about it, I mean, this is really what he's doing is, this is what the world has to offer uh, as what makes you feel better after you've made a big mistake. He's acknowledged what he's done. He's labeled what he's done. He's tried to have some sort of kind of restitution. He's, He's gotten rid of the money that he's owned. He's actually even paid it back to the people who were um, his conspirators. But that doesn't make him feel any better. And what he's, he's actually showing here is just beautiful theology. That apart from Christ, there's nothing that's going to make you feel good about sin. There, there's no solution to a guilty conscience apart from Jesus. It never moves a, a beyond what will make Judas feel better. What will quiet that little voice in the back of his head saying, you're guilty, you're condemned. There's nothing that he can do. That's where he's been missing the point all along. A conscience that's at peace. Forgiveness of sin is not found in Judas, it's found in Jesus, the one that he has betrayed. That's actually why he continues on to the end that he does. Verse 5, we know he goes, he hangs himself. He does not do a very good job of it. After he hangs himself, the rope breaks, his body falls, it bursts open, and his guts come out. Anything to get rid of a guilty conscience Now, I would be remiss at this point if I didn't address, at least there are some in the room here that you struggle with a guilty conscience. And I would say if you are apart from Christ, you are correct, you should. If you don't know Christ, friend, I do worry for you. Your sins are yours and will get the judgment you have deserved. The good news is what we read in that promise of pardon. That if you wish, it can be by Christ's suffering that you can be made well and made whole. And it's given freely even beyond that. That's the most amazing thing. 
I mean, Judas is all along going, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do to make myself feel better? And there's a sense in which he's missing the fact that Jesus is doing it all. I acknowledge there's probably a second category of person in here, a dear saint, that struggles with this too. Someone who's already united to Christ, you've walked with him for perhaps many years, you've loved his word, you love the Lord, but yet, ooh, you struggle. That voice of condemnation in your ear, and for some of us, it honestly manifests the same way. An earthly regret that is filled with self-loathing. And I would say, friends, if that is your case, if you're in Christ and that's what you're struggling with, I would suggest humbly you need to repent because that's sin too. The Bible's very clear. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. He doesn't loathe you. He loves you. That's why he went to the cross. You need to give up holding that hate for yourself in your heart. It's wrong. Again, we talked about this in Sunday school. It's not a good thing for you to hate things that God himself does not hate, including yourself. Instead, hate your sin, repent, find promise in Christ, look to his word and the spirit to change you and move on and delight in Christ. Story doesn't stop there. You get to see the priests, unbearable hypocrites. I love it. (laughs) We can't keep the blood money that we paid him. And he returned uncomfortably. What do we do with the dirty money that used to be ours? We'll spend it. Weirdly enough, in a way that fulfills prophecies in two different books. One minor prophet, one major. Until we get, ooh, one of the great figures of this introduced in Pilate. I suspect Pilate probably captures the spirit of American South, the American South, better than probably any character in the entire New Testament. Pilate, his response to the Christ as you get to work through this is, an intentionally lazy ignoring. It's not ignorance, because he knows actually who he's dealing with. It's, a, it's an intentional, cannot be bothered with who Jesus is. It's a, a trying to force it down and forget, a trying to kind of act like it doesn't matter, a kind of trying to keep it quiet in the back of our mind, because he knows that if he's consistent, it will require something of him. Verse 11, the trial before the governor begins or the conversation here. When he asks Jesus, are you king of the Jews? This is what they're saying. Interestingly, Jesus, these are the only words that we get in his interaction, really defending himself in any way, and it's actually not a defense. What he in essence says is, I didn't say that, you did. Those are your words, they're not my words. I'm, I'm Literally, Jesus literally does not defend himself. He clarifies here that that's what you've said, not me. 
And as he finishes that, the chief priests jump in and begin to give accusation, and he doesn't say anything at all. Isaiah 53, fulfilled like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent, giving no answer, even to the point, verse 14, that that the Romans are astonished that a man could endure such accusations and not respond in any way at all. He's a righteous man, an innocent man, he's a good man, a true man, and the reality of it is that Pilate figures that out. Pilate's the consummate politician. He's slimy, and he's a weasel. So knowing that Jesus is righteous, a good man would say, let him go. But that's a good man. A slimy man will say, well, maybe there's another way I can get out of this. How can I sort this out? I know. I know exactly what it is. We have this tradition that every year we let a criminal go. And it'll be easy. I'll pit Jesus against Barabbas. The crowds literally tried to crown Jesus as king like five days ago, six days ago. Barabbas is scum of the earth. This is easy. No crowd in their right mind is going to say, we want Barabbas. No one's going to do that. We know for a fact the crowd loves Jesus. They love him. That's why the chief priests have been so afraid to touch him up to this point, because they know the crowd wants Jesus to succeed. Pilate's not stupid. Too many sermons have handled him in such a way. He's very clever. This is a master manipulator's tactic to force the crowd to do the dirty work for him. They're going to say, Jesus, I'm going to let Jesus free. It'll be easy. And guess what? I won't have to do anything at all. And I suspect that's in so many ways, again, the heart of the kind of the American South's response to Jesus. I mean, I, I have a good idea that he's probably a good man, but I don't really have to do anything at all. I'll let those other people do it. It doesn't require for me any love, any affection, any obedience, any joy, any delight, any faith. It doesn't require anything of me, really, because I'll let those other people do it. Lazy, ignoring an inconsistency, a turning a blind eye, a refusing to interact with. Obviously, it doesn't go the way that Pilate expects. He gets a moment of distraction we're going to come back to in a moment. The chief priests sneak in and try to persuade. We'll get to that again in a moment. But 24 through 26, you get to see the heart of Pilate kind of written large. He's not making any progress, verse 24. In fact, rather, it's about to be a riot, so he does what any good man does washes his hands and says, it's your fault. He's not a good man at all. A slimy politician who knows that he's sending an innocent man to die. And that's what that statement is in 24. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. It's yours. It's It's your fault. No, Pilate, it's yours too, buddy. You're sending an innocent man to die. And I suspect, as I've said, that uh, part of what's going on here is this ability to kind of just 
ignore the cognitive dissonance in his head, to ignore the fact that he knows he's getting ready to send an innocent man to die, to ignore the facts that he knows are true. As I mentioned, I said, I think he's probably the perfect figure to kind of encapsulate what's so common in the American South and how we think about Jesus. Is it's so common for it to be thrown around casually here that Jesus is God. And then to quietly ignore any of the consequences that that would demand. Friends, if he's God... You have to listen to what he said. If he's God, he's the only way to salvation. That's what he said. If he's God, he's your only hope, and in life and in death. If he's God, when he demands your all, well, you should give it. If he's God. My favorite quote in regards to this is actually from an unbeliever. Or at least he was when he said it. I don't know his spiritual condition now. Uh, you may know the uh, Penn and Teller. Right? The two magicians, illusionists, whatever they're calling themselves. I don't know. But Penn has famously a quote, and I'm just going to read it for you. Where I think he captures my frustration with Pilate. Perfectly, He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That's evangelize, try to make disciples. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them, because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That is some of the most just excellent thinking about Scripture from a genuine unbeliever at the time. Again, I don't know his spiritual condition now. What is he saying is, if the Bible's true, it has to reshape every bit of you. If Jesus is who he says he is, it changes everything. There's no part that's not changed. There's no part that you get to say, well, secretly, well, this is still mine. Everything else is Jesus, but this is mine. Even beyond that, we might go so far as to say it doesn't allow for that kind of category of Christian that's only a Christian Sunday morning, perhaps Sunday morning, Wednesday nights. Definitely a couple of holidays, but not the ones that are fun to travel on. It doesn't allow for that. That's what Pilate's, in essence, doing. Is he's, he's admitting that he knows, in essence, a little bit of who Jesus is and just saying, well, it's not really that big of a deal. 
That's not really that big of a deal. Teller's right. (laughs) If Jesus is who he says he is, it is absolutely the deal. Response four, I skipped over just briefly, verse 19. I love this. <laughs> it's, so, it's so real. Like this, I, you can totally see this happening. Pilate's like, ugh, I have to deal with these Jews. Ugh. He's irritated with his job, having to deal with the you know, idiot locals again. They've woken him up early. He's having to mess with it early. Ugh. And while he's doing it, his wife begins to aggravate him with a phone call from home. I love it. It's so human. It's fantastic. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sends a phone call, a messenger, to say, you got to get this guy out of here, man. I'm having nightmares about Jesus. And in order for me to sleep, you got to get rid of him. Let him go. Don't kill him, but let him go. Friends, what she exhibits is called superstition. Really, it's self-serving superstition. It's a variation on a theme from what Judas has done. It's it's an effort to make myself feel better, to give myself the ability to sleep at night without serving Jesus. Just let him go. Just, Just let him go. Maybe the dreams will stop. Maybe I can sleep again. This is, in essence, respect without love. This is much like what the demons do when they interact with Christ. They know who he is, but they only want what will make them feel better and have no affection for him. This is the one that I would, again, perhaps maybe warn some of us in here. That we believe the Bible is true, but... Rather than it stirring up our love, it just gives us a way to maybe try to make ourselves happy. Certainly the Bible's clear in saying that's a secondary byproduct of salvation, but that's an outworking of love, love of Christ. Lastly, and very quickly, the crowd. Attitude number five, they are too easily persuaded as to who Christ is. It's intriguing that beginning of this week, they get it right. There are not that many times in the Bible where you get to look at the crowd and say, man, they nailed it. But with the triumphal entry, they actually got it right. I mean, it's distorted, but like they tried to crown him king. And you're like, wow, you got it. You actually picked the right king. Well done. I mean, you got a lot of leaders. You got the right one. Well done, crowd. Excellent. How is it that they go from crowning Jesus king to killing him in just a matter of days? Well, there's two things, and we know this from here and other passages as well. Here we find out that while Pilate's distracted dealing with his wife, (laughs) verse 20 the chief priests and the elders start to persuade the crowd. Right? The, the judge is not paying attention, so they start whispering and uh, telling the crowd that it's going to cost them something and, and persuading, arm-twisting, whatever they wish. 
We find out also that part of the thing happening with the crowd is that they're disappointed that the king that they chose didn't look the way they wanted him to. They wanted him to immediately come and lop off the heads of all the Romans, right? Pull the sword out and start running people through. And he didn't do that. They're not uh, actually in charge yet. The Romans are still in charge. And so they flip on him and they get angry. He's not the kind of king they wanted. And it's interesting, they listen so easily to the chiefs, uh, the chief priests and the leaders, the elders here. They're so easily persuaded, and it's intriguing how uh, they're so slow to listen to the one who actually is describing himself. This is the thing that I find so intriguing. Jesus has not been secret in t- saying who he is. He's been willing to say who he is to anybody that's wanted to talk to him and listen. And in fact, actually, the last part of his ministry has been headed through Jerusalem. He's been very vocal, very vocal. And yet, interestingly, the crowd listens to the elders and the chief priests. They listen to the bad leaders the false teachers much more easily than they listen to the one who has spoken about himself. It's intriguing how, realistically, how angry this would make you if we did it to you. Can you imagine that? If I, let's say, we'll make up a situation. I had a question about your feelings. You know, how you're feeling, how you're thinking, something in your life. And so... I went around and listened to every other person in the church tell me about what you think and feel. What kind of person you are, how you act, are you a good human or are you not? Let everybody else tell me how you think and feel and act. And then let me make my decision based on that without ever listening to you. If I listened to absolutely everyone else but you, would you feel good at that? Would that be exciting to you? Probably not, right? You'd be rather perturbed, particularly if it was some sort of conflict resolution or if I thought you had done something sinful or a mistake. I wouldn't talk to everybody about your mistake except for you. The intriguing thing is how often we do that to God. Where it comes time for us to understand one of his actions inside of creation, and we literally talk to everyone else but him. We just don't listen. We go to every other voice but his to help us understand what he says about his word, what he says about his world, what he says about my world. Why does all of this matter, all of these responses? I like how here we get to see them because they're, as I mentioned, put in such a clear contrast with what's actually happening. Here you have small-minded, sinful creatures that are watching the Lord of life be persecuted. And not one of them is bothered. Except for a lady who can't sleep and it's made her grumpy. Twenty-seven through thirty are horrible. The Lord of Life is condemned. He's found guilty of a crime that he hasn't committed. In fact, Pilate even never even gives him one. He just basically lets him be murdered for free. 
and he's taken before an entire battalion of soldiers and they begin the process of torture. He's scourged in verse 26. That is enough to kill most of us. It certainly would get me right now. If we survived that, it's a torturous type of whipping on the back. They begin to mock him as a false king, torture him with a crown of thorns, torture him with a false scepter of reed, mock him for his character, spit on him, ridicule him, and then kill him. No one's bothered by it in the passage yet. No one's upset. No one's distraught that is presented here in this chapter. And intriguingly, everybody in the passage is so preoccupied with themselves, nobody's really looking at Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Nobody's looking at Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. No one's looking at Jesus who is the Redeemer of the elect. No one's looking at Jesus who is the only hope for salvation. Friends, the reality of the matter is is that as much as I would like to condemn all of the bozos in the chapter, the great temptation is that you walk through every day of your life and I walk through every day of my life and we waste it by not looking at Jesus. Your families are wonderful. I love them. Your jobs are enough sometimes. You don't love them. Your hobbies are a delight. But friends, they are all small and passing fancies in comparison to the beauty of Christ. Please, please do not squander the hours you've been given. You don't know when they're up. Use them to look at Christ. Why? Well, if we're in Christ, that's what we spend the rest of time doing. Let's get a head start now. Father, we confess that we love ourselves far more than we wish. Instead, O oh Lord, would you give us love of Christ? Instead, O oh Lord, would you give us eyes that long to see him? For his sake, amen.